weeks. I'm thankful to uh, to be back in the pulpit, trying to make up for lost time this morning. Um, we are not going to be in John uh, this morning. I have, um, even though I haven't been um, in the pulpit much over the last three weeks, it has been a very, very busy season for me. And so um, one of the things that I've been uh, working on um, over the last, I don't know, three weeks or so, has uh, been through some material on um, a biblical approach to uh, to marriage, family, and issues such as uh, divorce, remarriage, and those kinds of things. And so this morning, I want to look at a biblical approach to divorce and remarriage. Biblical approach to divorce and remarriage. Now, as I say that, um, I realize that this is a topic that is uh, pretty hotly debated and can be a pretty emotional issue uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, it's also a topic that can um, maybe sometimes more easily just be avoided. But brothers and sisters, it's a topic that's in Scripture. And so we don't avoid what God has revealed to us in Scripture because if we avoid it, we can't live off of it. So as we look at it this morning, I'm going to have to try, I'm going to try to move quickly and then hopefully, since it is one of these kinds of topics that can be debated and can be sort of an emotional type issue, hopefully there'll be questions that you're, you're, you're thinking as you go or maybe clarifications and so forth. And you can make note of that so that we can uh, address some of those in the discussion. Uh, the truth is, as far as the uh, the passages that address uh, deal directly with the topic of divorce and remarriage, there's really only seven or eight passages that deal directly with those. Um, you know this already, but uh, there are all kinds of different positions uh, that people land on biblically uh, land on whenever it comes to uh, divorce and remarriage. Sometimes that's because they only choose one passage or half of a passage to base their entire understanding on. And then other times there's just, you know, just an honest difference of interpretation. So um, I will go ahead and tell you, and, and hopefully you know this by now, as we look at this um, as we look at this subject this morning, I'm not trying to be conservative and I'm not trying to be liberal. I'm trying to be biblical. And you should do the same thing. One of the reasons people get so messed up in these kinds of areas is because they are reacting to the culture rather than trying to pull out of God's word what's actually there. And honestly, you know, you 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 look around and, and you see marriages crumbling and you see... Um, the marriage covenant being denigrated in the culture, you can't half blame somebody who says, I want to make a stronger stance for marriage. But the problem is, when you try to do that in such a way that's adding to or taking away from what God has said, and we can't do that, and we can't do that and call it a biblical position. And so, as we look at this this morning, my goal and hopefully as you're, as you're weighing what's being said, you'll be able to, to see this. My goal is that I don't want to say anything more or anything less than what Scripture says in this area. And I have to be willing to sacrifice preconceived notions to the authority of God's Word. So there may be a few things that you hear this morning and you say, you know what, I have never heard that before, or 
that's not what brother so-and-so says, or that's not what I've always heard about this. And all those things are perfectly fine. But the real question you're going to have to come back to and, and wrestle with is, is that consistent with what the passage is saying? See, a lot of times we, particularly over sticky type issues uh, in the Christian world and in the church, a lot of times we can run circles around each other because we're talking about everything except the actual text. Okay, You may have a position and I may have a position. And if all we do is go back and forth on that position and we never do get around to saying, okay, whenever we get to these texts of Scripture, what are they actually saying? Then we can run circles around each other and never get anywhere. Okay, so as I go through the message, I'm going to give seven, uh, six points. I think it's six points here because some of these passages, I've got two under one. Six points and they're all connected to a, uh, a particular passage. Uh, I will go ahead and tell you the handout for this afternoon has these points on it along with the scripture references. So if you miss something, you're going to get it this afternoon. So as we think about a biblical approach to divorce and remarriage, the first place I want to start is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, this is more, by the way, this is more than just some sort of a theoretical thing. You know this already, and I've already mentioned it. But if you, if you or your family have not yet been affected by divorce and the topic of divorce and remarriage, it's very likely that you will be. Everyone here is touched at least through some kind of connection uh, with this issue. And so what we want to do is to be able to be equipped to speak truth into the realities of divorce and remarriage in a fallen world. Before we can do that, though, we need to establish some realities just about marriage. Okay, so we, we went to Genesis chapter 2. Um, we're going to look at um, really verses 24, um, just verse 24, just to set this up. Uh, Adam is brought to the conclusion that he does not have an appropriate companion in the garden. He, he names the animals. He sees that they're two by two, uh, male and female. And, and Adam realizes that, that he's all by himself. He doesn't have anyone that corresponds with him. And so the Lord puts him into a deep sleep. He takes Adam's rib and creates the woman, Eve. And then in um, verse 23, Adam sees the woman and it says, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. So in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, we get a couple of realities about marriage. First, God creates the institution of marriage. Okay, so as we're, as we're trying to react or respond to anything uh, from a cultural standpoint, we want to make sure that we're bringing ourselves not only back to God's original intent, but also back to how God handles whatever the topic is as it moves forth and is unfolded in Scripture. God's original intent for marriage is, is typically agreed upon across the board. 
Therefore shall a man leave and uh, leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Okay, this in a nutshell um, is referring to uh, a a covenant companionship. This is a um, this is a relationship between Adam and Eve, between the man and the woman, that's going to be prioritized above every other earthly relationship. So it doesn't mean that. Um, at least for our case, Adam and Eve didn't have a mother and a father. And I used to wonder why in the world would Adam say this if um, he didn't have a mother and a father. And I don't think Adam said verse 24. This is Moses giving a commentary on what happened there in um, in, in the garden. That's why the therefore is put there. Um, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. That is... He's going to prioritize his wife. He's going to prioritize this marriage, this covenant relationship over even the closest earthly relationships that he or her has. And he shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So it's this covenant relationship that's prioritized. And then it's this cultivation and growing of a one flesh relationship between husband and wife that is unlike any other relationship that the individual has. Now, there is a sexual component to this, but it's not just talking about sexual intimacy here. It's talking about a growing in oneness. And we talked about that not too long ago, maybe a couple of months ago. And I'm not going to belabor that point. Uh, the point here is that whenever God created marriage, it was a um, it was a relationship that was above every other relationship. And what we know about marriage and God's original intent is that it was between one man and one woman. And according to Romans chapter seven, verses one through three. The covenant of marriage was intended to last until the death of a spouse. So in Romans chapter seven, you can turn there. That's not a surprise to you, by the way. This is not, this is not anything that anybody would debate. Everybody that would try to take a biblical approach would, would agree on these things so far. Romans chapter 7, he's using this as an illustration, but it still clearly lays this out. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And so lots could be said about marriage and the original institution of marriage. That's obviously not the whole point of this message. But I do want to say from the outset that when we think about what God's original design for marriage, for the institution of marriage, was it, at creation, God's original design for marriage is that it would be a lifelong covenant companionship that was entered into by one man and one woman and that was only dissolvable at the death of a spouse. So brothers and sisters, when we think about a biblical view of marriage, that's it. 
Okay, whatever else we land on, whenever it comes to divorce, remarriage, this is God's intent for marriage. And so what does that mean if we think about this from a practical standpoint? Well, what it means is for young folks, as you think about the relationships that you're entering into, and as you think about the prospect of what it means for you to choose a spouse, if you want to do that in a way that honors God, you need to be having a lifelong covenant commitment in mind. So the reality is we do live in a culture that takes marriage as as really just a very loose institution. Uh, No real regard for the Lord and the Lord's original intent when it comes to marriage. One of the things that we see again in Genesis chapter 2 and Romans chapter 7 is that this is a relationship that was meant to last for a lifetime. Again, no, no, um, no disagreements there. The second point that I want to make, the second point that I want to make, and this is as we're going to move into um, the whole issue of divorce and remarriage, is going to be out of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Turn to Deuteronomy 24. Because a lot of times people have the question, and it's you know it's it, it's a question. I don't I mean it, you can't say it's a good one or a bad one. It's just a question. Um, since God's original intent for marriage was that it would be lifelong and only dissolvable at the death of a spouse, then does God even recognize divorce? And different people answer that in different ways. The Catholic Church as a whole says that if you were ever married, that if you're ever divorced. No matter what happens, you're still married in God's eyes. It's some sort of a mystical covenant that cannot be broken. Other people besides the Catholic Church would say that, but the Catholic Church is the biggest proponent of that view. Deuteronomy chapter 24 helps us answer this this whole question about whether or not God would recognize divorce and or remarriage. Let me just start reading Deuteronomy 24 starting in verse 1. It says, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance." Now, Deuteronomy chapter 24 is an essential passage for us to understand as we think about this whole topic of divorce and remarriage. This is the passage that Jesus is referring back to in Matthew chapter 19, whenever he says it was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses permitted a bill of divorcement. And so um, this is not the first time in Scripture. There's a place in Exodus, and we'll look at that later, where where divorce regulations are brought up. But this is the... uh, 
what I would call, I guess, the, the main foundational um, passage as far as this is where God begins to regulate divorce and remarriage. And so we said, number one, God creates the institution of marriage. The second point out of Deuteronomy 24 is that God commanded the regulation of divorce and remarriage. Okay, God commanded the regulation of divorce and remarriage. Now, I didn't say God commanded divorce, and I didn't say God commanded remarriage, but I did say, and it's plain in the passage, that God commands the regulation of these things. Now, this passage helps us answer a couple of questions. Question number one that we referenced earlier, does God recognize divorce as a legitimate dissolving of the marriage covenant? So the idea that if you go through a divorce or if someone goes through a divorce, are they still married in God's eyes? Well, verse 1 is pretty helpful here. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1 and 3 for this, but... When a man, this is Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man has taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed from his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Now, I don't really even have to say anything except if you read those two verses, does it seem like God recognizes that a divorce has happened? The answer is yes. Okay? Now that may make us uncomfortable. We may not like that. But that's what the text says. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 really, really makes no sense and is um, unable to be understood or applied at all if God doesn't recognize the dissolving of a marriage through a certificate of divorce. You'll notice in the passage that not only does he give regulations on what should happen in the case that this man finds some uncleanness. Now that, that's a phrase that's a, a pretty ambiguous phrase. We're not exactly sure what that means. And that was a phrase that was hotly debated even in Jesus' day and this was the phrase that was behind the Pharisees coming to him in Matthew 19 asking for what reason can a man put away his wife. And we'll, we'll talk about the different views of that when we get to Matthew 19. But whatever is meant by this phrase, some uncleanness, it's clear from Deuteronomy 24 that it was grounds for a legitimate divorce. How do we know that? Well, because number one, a bill of divorcement was written. Number two, the woman could go and marry another man. Number three, as the text goes, goes down and, and, and it, it begins to develop, it says, and if the second husband or the latter husband, it's talking about the second time this lady gets married. Okay, well, if God didn't recognize the first divorce, then verse three makes zero sense talking about the latter husband. He would just be the latter adulterer, but that's not what he's called here. If the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement, that's divorce number two, and give it in her hand and send her out of his house, or if he dies, we're talking hypotheticals here, then her former, this is verse four, her former husband, that is the first husband which sent her away, 
cannot take her again to be his wife. Now, this, this whole section flies in the face of God doesn't recognize the first divorce. This, this whole section is built upon the notion that he recognizes the first divorce because the only man who's not allowed to marry this woman after her second husband dies or divorces her is the guy she was married to first. You catch that in the passage? Now, I'm not celebrating the fact that these are realities in a fallen world, but we have to acknowledge and wrestle with the fact that this means something. And what it means is, as far as God's regulation of divorce, is that number one, He does acknowledge a marriage covenant to be dissolved when a divorce takes place. And number two, there are legitimate grounds, and we'll talk more about this when we get into 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19. There are legitimate grounds for a remarriage that God acknowledges. And if that weren't the case, then Deuteronomy 24 makes no sense. Okay? It's hard to interpret Deuteronomy 24 aside from those two things. So um, just, to, just to make sure that we keep this in mind, uh, while, again, while... While divorce was never God's original intent, He does recognize it and He regulates it very early on in Israel's history. And again, Exodus 21 would really be the first time and we'll look at that later. So, God created marriage. God commanded that divorce and remarriage be regulated. So this was already going on. Um, God comes in through Moses in Deuteronomy 24 just to regulate it. Number three, third point out of Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. If you've dealt with this topic as far as divorce and remarriage from Scripture, this is the passage you'll know. It's, it's, uh, it's alluded to often. Malachi chapter 2. starting in verse 11. And we're reading down to verse 16. It says, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out, and so much that he regardeth not the offering any more or receiveth it with good, uh, with good will at your hand. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed? Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, 
For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Now the reason that I took verses 11 through 16 was so that we could get that, and maybe you'll have to go back and read it again, but so that we could get that in context of what's going on. And here's why. Because unfortunately, there are some, and there are some that have been widely influential, who have built their entire theology on divorce from the first phrase of Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. Probably you've heard this, this phrase quoted that God hates divorce. Right? Then that's what the passage says. God hates divorce. But if you look at the passage in context, you'll find that this is not a passage that can be used to manipulate an innocent party who has legitimate grounds for divorce into remaining in a situation because they will incur guilt from God if they move forward in a legitimate divorce due to adultery, due to abandonment. And unfortunately, that's the way this has been used. I've, I've, I've talked to many people in real situations who were going through very, very difficult uh, circumstances with legitimate grounds for divorce, and those who were closest to them were hanging Micah 2, 16 over their heads as if they were violating Scripture somehow to move forward with a divorce that Christ Himself would say would be legitimate. Now, here's what I'm here's here's just in case you're you're missing what I'm saying. Malachi chapter two is a um, is a stinging condemnation to the men and husbands of Israel who were dealing with their wives treacherously. It, the whole section there is God addressing. The, the, the men of Israel who were doing violence against their wives, who were tr- treating their wives treacherously, who were trading them for wives who came from foreign nations with foreign gods. And so the, the text here is not teaching that if a divorce occurs, both parties incur guilt. Now, it may be that both parties incur guilt. That's, that's perfectly possible. And that's a, um, that's a possibility that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But it's also possible that a divorce can, can, can occur and there be a non-sinning party in that divorce. That's possible. Matter of fact, that's what God's talking about here. Um, God views divorce just like he would view any other sin. And Ezekiel 18 is pretty helpful with that. Turn over to Ezekiel 18 for me. That's a good passage to, to connect to this Malachi passage. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked 
shall be upon him. Now, whenever I say this, and, and I'm thinking about Malachi chapter 2, um, I'm not saying that since we have Malachi chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 18, that we should never try to help someone save their marriage who has legitimate grounds for divorce. Matter of fact, it's kind of funny. I say it's funny. It probably wasn't funny to them, but in relation to working through all this, I've, I've started meeting with a new couple this week who's from out of state, and you're not going to know who they are. And after they finished, uh, uh, one party wants to divorce, one doesn't. And after they finished telling me what all was going on, then, um, then I tried to give them a little bit of hope, and I started with, well, you've got some, some things to work through, but the good news is, is I, I think you guys can work through these things. To which I spent the next 10 minutes getting blessed out by one of the spouses for even suggesting there might be hope that the marriage would be saved. Okay, so our default position as Christians is that if it can be saved, we want to see that. We want to work toward that. We want to see reconciliation. But brothers and sisters, in a fallen world, that's not always the case. And in a fallen world where God speaks into this, it's not always what He commands either. Now again, we might say, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, we've got to adjust our comforts to the revelation that God's given us in Scripture. I don't expect anybody to ever celebrate a divorce. But the flip side of that is someone putting weights on other Christians that the Lord does not place on their backs and placing burdens on them that do not come from a careful understanding of Scripture, more from just zingers that we throw out there because they sound good in a sermon. So Malachi chapter 2 is going to be an important passage. You'll see because it's going to, it's going to be applied to the next one that we, uh, the next one that we see. But Malachi 2.16 is meant to really get the attention of hard-hearted rebels who are treating their wives in a way that is incongruent with God's design for covenant companionship and marriage. So God condemns the sinning party. Number four, look in Jeremiah chapter three. Jeremiah chapter three. In Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 6, it says, The Lord said also unto me, in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me. But she returned not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. Now, you probably guessed it by now, but what I'm after is that middle portion in verse 8 
The Lord is talking about the fact that Israel, um, uh, Israel had turned from him. The, the, the imagery here is that Israel had played the harlot and he called Israel to return. But she would not. And so eventually God's patience with Israel runs out. And he says, I put her away and gave her a bill of divorcement. Now, it's strange to say this. It sounds weird. It even sounds blasphemous in some ways. But according to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, God is divorced. Not only that, but God is the one who started the paperwork. And so here's the question. How can it be that a thrice holy God who is perfect in holiness, how could it be that he could be perfectly righteous and divorced at the same time? And the answer is exactly what we said from Malachi chapter 2. It's that God holds the sinning party guilty and the innocent party does not incur guilt. Now, again, when I say that, I don't want to say it in such a way that I'm communicating that I believe every divorce has one sinning and one innocent. That's not what I mean. Probably the majority of of divorces that occur, occur with two guilty parties. But the reason I emphasize this is because there are those that occur where there is an innocent party. There's a passive party. There is someone who would have rather fought for the marriage, had the marriage restored, but the spouse behaved in such a way that it was just not possible for that to happen. And it eventually had to be dissolved. And so, what we said out of Malachi chapter 2, God condemns the guilty party. And that's how Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8 can stand and God can still be a thrice holy God. Now, the fifth point here, and again, I've... I've, uh, you're going to have all these on your on your outline, and I can give you some more stuff if it's if you if you want it uh, this afternoon. Fifth point: We're going to go to Ezra chapter nine. Ezra chapter nine. Now. Ezra chapter 9, this comes, Ezra comes after the Babylonian exile. So we spent all that time uh, earlier in the year uh, going through Daniel. Ezra comes after Daniel. So you remember from Habakkuk that God's patience had run out with Judah. He sends Babylon as his... um, rod of correction as his judgment to Judah. They go into exile for 70 years. And as we, particularly as we worked our way through Daniel, we, in those latter chapters, we talked about just the anticipation that, um, that Judah had of going back home and, and, and having the, uh, the city of God restored and being able to worship again in the temple of God and, and all those kinds of things. Well, Ezra chapter 9, um, lets us know that it did not take long 
for things to get pretty bad when the exiles came home from Babylon. And so in Ezra chapter 9, starting in, I mean, you could read the, the whole chapter of 9 and 10, and you can fill in more details, but for the sake of, uh, of time, Ezra 9, starting in verse 10, um, well, that's actually Ezra's response. Let me just tell you what happened. They got back, and Ezra discovers that the people of Israel along with the priest and along with the Levites, had intermarried with um, women from the surrounding nations. Okay, so that was a violation of God's law. They knew that. They knew that was not supposed to happen. And uh, Ezra finds out that there aren't just one or two or three but there are lots and lots of not just commoners, but even those who would, who would be in the priesthood, uh, in the Levites. They, they had intermarried. And so this is, a, this is a bad situation. Verse 10 of Ezra chapter 9. This is Ezra praying here. He says, And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets, saying, The land unto which you go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, and so forth and so on. This is just the command that God had given. Do not take their daughters and do not take their sons, so forth and so on. Don't intermarry. Well, again, they just came out of Babylonian captivity and they have shot themselves in the foot before they can even really get started. And what's the response? Well, Ezra hears this, and in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, he says this, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. Then... I really don't know how to, uh, you can pronounce that several ways. Shekinah, the son of Jeel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. And now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So, in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, this is just the sentence I'm using here, this is what happens. The people end up divorcing their foreign wives. And so this is what we get out of Ezra 9 and 10. God does condone divorce in Ezra 9 and 10 as the best of two bad options. The best of two bad options. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. It's an old saying, you can't unscramble an egg. You ever heard that? 
Once it's scrambled, you can't unscramble it. It's there. You've got to figure out where you're going to go from there. Well, Ezra, uh, or the people there in Ezra 9 and 10 were in a situation where by default they were rebelling against God. It was a sin for them to remain married to these foreign wives that they should have never been married to to begin with. And the alternative there was to divorce them for, as far as we know, no reason that would have been consistent with the law as far as the laws of divorce went. And yet, that's just exactly what happened. Now, am I saying that this is a... um, standard rule that we ought to um, that we ought to always apply no this is not the rule but brothers and sisters in a sin cursed world this is a reality this is a reality there are times where people find themselves in such a mess that the only options that they have are between bad and bad or maybe I should say sin and sin and when this is the case Number one, it should not be entered into lightly. And number two, it should not be entered into alone. Now I say this just to acknowledge that Ezra 9 and 10, they're there. They're in Scripture and and you've got to do something with them. We don't have a word of... uh, God condemning this choice in this book. I'm not saying he celebrates it either. But as we think about divorce and remarriage from a biblical perspective, we've got to acknowledge again that in a fallen world, there are lots of sticky, convoluted messes where people have to do the best they can where they are in order to move forward. Now, that poses a problem for people who like black and white solutions, doesn't it? That poses a problem for somebody who wants to always know that this is always right. But you know what the problem is with that sort of a mindset? It's not the desire necessarily. But if, if, if we were, if we functioned in a world where we could always know black and white, you know, wisdom would be unnecessary. You could throw the whole book of Proverbs away because you never need it. But there's, for some reason, God's given us the book of Proverbs, hasn't He? And for some reason, in the book of Proverbs, the Lord again and again and again and again is encouraging us, get wisdom. Get wisdom. In a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. James chapter 1, if you lack wisdom, seek it from the Lord who gives liberally. So brothers and sisters, Ezra 9 and 10, again, it's not the rule, but it's one of those places in Scripture that we have to acknowledge that wisdom is going to be required at times when we're thinking about divorce from a biblical perspective. So what that means is, as far as a church decision goes, these kinds of things should never be left in the hand of one person as a church decides. We need collective wisdom in some areas. 
And we also need to pray that the Lord would give us wisdom as those things come about. So that's uh, Ezra 9. Now the last point here is going to be in um, the New Testament. We're going to move over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Now, now let me give you an example of what I mean before I go to Matthew 19 over an Ezra 9 and 10 scenario. And this is a real life scenario. Just so you know that, that I don't mean this in some sort of a trite way. Um, so the scenario is this. There's a, there's a young lady who is a professing Christian and she has grown cold and she has grown distant um, from the Lord. She meets a man who is a Muslim and she decides that she wants to uh, enter into a marriage with this man. Uh, in order to do that, she has to uh, vow allegiance to Allah. She has to renounce her faith. She does that. She enters into this marriage and a couple of weeks in, the Lord opens her eyes and her heart to the reality that she has just made a tremendous mistake. And so she's left with one of two options. Option number one, live the rest of her life pretending to be a Muslim, worshiping a God that is not Jehovah. Or number two, I guess there's three choices here. Number two, take back this renouncing of her faith. Let her husband know that she's not a Muslim. She's actually a Christian. And this is a, this is a real scenario. And in that light, living under her husband's authority, and your honor beatings and possibly an honor killing because in the Muslim world, at least in his flavor of the Muslim world, that's what happens to infidels. Or number three, she gets a divorce, leaves the marriage, and is removed from that scenario to come back home and live her life with her parents and start, you know, start fresh. Now we could, you know, we could talk all of, we could talk back and forth about the remarriage side of that, but even the divorce side of that is pretty sticky, isn't it? Number one, it was a sin for her to ever be yoked together with an unbeliever. But then number two, you get in a sticky situation like that, and if you're thinking to yourself, well, that's easy, I would just, then I would say this. Put your daughter in the story. Not because I think we ought to be making our decisions based upon an emotional reaction, but if you're thinking to yourself, that's easy, I would just, I would suggest you're not motivated to really see what Scripture has to say about this scenario. See, part of the problem with some of these really quick, tight, neat, boxed up divorce stances is that they're indifferent to the people that they actually apply to. 
Now, again, that doesn't mean that if it's indifferent, it can't be biblical. It does mean that if you're indifferent, your motivation to do anything besides get a nice, neat, tidy, boxed up position is nothing. Once I got that, I'm good. And so, again, there's sticky, sticky type situations. I am not talking about on an Ezra chapter 9 and 10 scenario that a woman goes home and her husband is mean to her from the standpoint that he says mean words, and after a month she's done. That's not an Ezra 9 and 10 situation. Now, I don't obviously condone husbands being mean to their wives, but I'm just making a distinction. All right. Lastly, in Matthew chapter 19, this will be the one that most of you are going to be familiar with. And, and in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Mark and Luke, this... Uh, uh, this teaching comes up, but Matthew 19 is the fullest, um, the fullest section. In Matthew 19, we actually get to hear the question that Jesus is answering. In Luke's account and in Mark's account, there's not a question tied to what Jesus says, so we don't really know what answer he's uh, or what question he's answering there. Matthew 19, one through twelve. Um, in this uh, in this section of scripture, the Pharisees come to try to trip Jesus up with a question about divorce and remarriage. Now, we mentioned this earlier in Deuteronomy 24, but there were two uh, rabbinic schools of thought about divorce, and they all hinged on what Deuteronomy 24:1 meant by some uncleanness. The first one, I'm calling it the first one, the conservative position said that you can only divorce your spouse for sexual immorality. Um, now, this is worth noting as far as the background. Jewish and Roman law demanded a divorce in the case of adultery. It was not optional in those cultures. Um, divorce was, I mean, you know this already from, from the Old Testament, divorce was a... Uh, was a capital offense in the Old Testament. What you might not know is that wasn't just restricted to the Jews. You know, divorce, uh, I'm sorry, not divorce. Adultery was a capital offense. Do you know that adultery was a capital offense in Babylon? Many of the ancient Near Eastern cultures, that was a law that was across the board. So um, when Jesus begins to answer this question, this is not some kind of a new revelation. If someone were uh, married to someone and their spouse committed adultery, under the old law, they would have been dead, which means the, the marriage covenant was dissolved and they were free to remarry. When they come and they ask Jesus about this, again, the conservative position said, you must divorce. The liberal position understood some uncleanness as uh, to be just anything you didn't like. And you've probably heard that one before. Uh, your wife burns the bagels and she's out. It could be anything. Um, what you'll notice is that Jesus is not conservative or liberal. He's biblical. He does not demand divorce in the case of fornication, but he does allow it. Okay, but now we're looking at Matthew chapter 19. Verse uh, 9, he says, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her 
which is put away doth commit adultery. Now the implication on this verse or to this verse is that if a man puts away his wife because of fornication, then he does not commit adultery if he gets a divorce and if he gets remarried. So maybe you've heard of the exception clauses of divorce. This is exception number one that we see here. Now, there are some that would take this passage, and this is not an uncommon interpretation. I don't think it's a good one, but there are some that say Jesus is not referring to marriage here, but Jesus is referring to uh, betrothal, um, that, that what we would think of as being engaged. And betrothal is more than what our modern day engagement would be. But I believe if you look at Matthew 19 and you take it for what it is, this is uh, it's just not a very good interpretation for at least two reasons. Number one, there is a Greek word for betrothal. And it's used in Luke chapter 1, verse 27, when it talks about Mary being espoused to Joseph. Jesus knew that word, and He chose not to use it. The second reason why I think this is not, and, and really cannot, be talking about betrothal is because it's obvious in verse 10 that the disciples understand Jesus to be talking about marriage, not betrothal. You know their response? Their response in verse 10 is, um, uh, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to get engaged. It's not good to be betrothed. It's not what it says, is it? What does it say? It's not good to what? Marry, yeah. By the way, the disciples knew the word for betrothal as well. Okay, So, Jesus here is referring to an actual marriage case, and what He's teaching is that fornication is a legitimate grounds for divorce, and when that happens, the freedom to remarry is there. Now, there's one more thing about this passage that sometimes people will take and, and say, well, this, this obviously is referring to betrothal. And that is, why the word fornication? Why didn't Jesus say except for adultery? Because adultery is what happens whenever you're married. So why fornication? Well, the word fornication is really an umbrella term that just means sexual immorality. Adultery is a form of fornication. Okay, So whenever Jesus is, is, is using this word, the word fornication is not reserved for people who are not married, married people can, can commit fornication and do commit fornication every time adultery occurs. So it's an umbrella term that includes adultery. Um, so, exception clause one, Matthew 19, Jesus says, if you, take a, uh, if you divorce a wife for, I'm putting the negative into the positive here, if you divorce for the case of fornication, then you are not committing adultery if you remarry. Now, the last one, I know we're, we're running low on time or short on time, but I still got a minute or two left. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 15. Paul is addressing three different scenarios. And, and we can talk more about this this afternoon. For time's sake, I'm going to give you the scenarios. I'm going to let you read them. 
Scenario number one is in verses 10 and 11. And that is um, to uh, uh, two married believers. Two, two married believers. And he's referencing back to Matthew um, 19. And he's essentially he's saying, aside from sexual immorality, do not divorce. Okay, this is what he's saying to two believers. Now, the reason I'm saying that he's referencing back to Matthew chapter 19 is because you can see in the text, um, and unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. So he's bringing in what Jesus said in Matthew 19. Second group in verses 13 and 14 is a believer who's married to an unbeliever, but the unbeliever in this scenario is pleased to dwell. You'll notice that phrase in verse 13 and 14. Pleased to dwell with the believer. And in that case, Paul says, remain married. Now, just in case uh, you get thrown off by Paul's language, um, in verse 12 when he says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. When Paul says that, Paul's not saying I'm taking a pause from uh, inspiration of Scripture here. Paul's saying the Lord Jesus Christ never dealt with marriages between believers and unbelievers. He was sent to the house of Israel. He was dealing with Jews. And so he's saying Jesus didn't give a word on this, so I'm going to give a word on this. I'm going to... I'm going to give regulations or or, or apply um, uh, older um, regulations to this scenario. So believer to an unbeliever, if they're pleased to dwell with them, you remain married. Now that phrase, pleased to dwell, um, is an interesting phrase. There are some people who take that just in a wooden literal fashion to mean they're just pleased to stay under one, you know, the same roof. There are some who would see a connection between this phrase, pleased to dwell, and Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, where a slave is taken as a wife. Now, in Jewish culture, a slave had very minimal rights. You, you know that if you're familiar with the Old Testament. But in this case, if a slave were taken as a wife, and for whatever reason, the husband decided to take another wife, then he had to continue to provide the same amount of food, the same amount of clothing, and then what's called marital duty or marital rights. Now that's translated in several different ways. Some call it conjugal rights. But the word in and of itself just simply means dwelling. Okay, dwelling, but it's it's a, it's it's an umbrella type phrase again is the way some take it. I would tend to think they're correct about that, in the sense that these very basic things, what it means to be pleased to dwell in the marriage as a marriage, these very basic things um, must be involved. And if they weren't in Exodus twenty one chapter uh, chapter twenty one verse ten, you can go back and look at it the slave was free to leave without any penalty. Now, we're talking here about um, um, a, a long-term scenario. We're not talking about one thing happened one time. And again, I would say 
this interpretation would require wisdom, not just flying off the cuff. So, a believer and an unbeliever is pleased to dwell with, then they remain married. Third scenario is a believer married to an unbeliever, verse 15, and that unbeliever departs. And in that scenario, the believer is free to divorce and to remarry. Um, More could be said about that, but for time's sake, I'm not going to continue there. Those are the three, three scenarios. Now, let me just end in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Just to tie this all up, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. When we're thinking about a topic like divorce and remarriage in Scripture, and this is not the only topic that's like this, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29 is pretty appropriate as a heading. Ecclesiastes 7.29 Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. God made man upright, but they sought out many inventions. Now, just on the, on the base of it, you, that may not even make any sense, but it's the inventions here are opposed to the fact that man was made upright. What, what he's saying here is that God made man upright and good and gave man good gifts, but man has creatively messed up, tarnished, and defiled the goodness that the Lord has given them. In other words, we live in a world that is full of all kinds of unique messes. And so as we think about these kinds of areas, I would just say this, you may come to a different conclusion than I do on some of these passages. And if you do, that's fine. We can, uh, we can still be friends. But, but, but if you do, I would encourage you that you need to come up with what you believe the passage to be saying. Some of these things, there's just absolutely, um, there's just absolutely uh, no way around it. The idea, you know, I hear people say at times, the idea that uh, a divorce has taken place, and a remarriage, and this idea that God never sees the marriage covenant dissolved, and so ideally what would happen is if the person would repent, then they would get divorced from their second marriage and go back and remarry the first spouse. According to Deuteronomy chapter 24, that's an abomination to the Lord. Now, it sounds good on the surface, but if we don't know Scripture, we're in bad shape. So this is, these are complex type issues. Doesn't mean we can't say anything about them. It does mean that if what we have to say about them, we can say in a sentence or two, and it always applies to everybody no matter what, we may need to go back and rethink what we are calling biblical. So as we, uh, as we close out, I hope that if you have questions, uh, comments, those kinds of things, we can discuss those this afternoon. Uh, this is one of those messages that's really meant to help you do what Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians chapter five calls us to, and that is prove all things and hold to that which is good. In the world we live in, you need to know something about what Scripture has to say about divorce. My prayer is that the message this morning will help you do that, and that we'll grow together in our understanding. Let's pray.
Father, um, we're talking about a, 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 a really a sad subject this morning. Um, things are not supposed to be the way that they are in a fallen world. And yet, that's just exactly where we live. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to wander. You have not left us to flounder. You have not left us in a place where we don't have a word on how we should think about and address these kinds of issues. And so I pray that you would give us clarity and that you would bless us with faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.